Now we continue our studies in Paul's letter to the Romans, and we are still this evening in Romans chapter 8, where we have been for a number of Lord's Day evenings, and we come this evening to Romans chapter 8 and verses 18 through 25. Romans chapter 8, 18 through 25, the Pew Bible, page 944, and if you've any other translation than the English Standard Version, it may be helpful for you to take the Pew Bible in front of you and look at page 944, and as I think I said a couple of weeks ago, that's particularly true if your own version is the New International Version. There are many good things in the New International Version. Its translation of Romans chapter 8 happens not to be one of them. It misses out some very important connectives in Paul's argument. Well, let's read in. Last Sunday, we were thinking about these marvelous words that we've received, the spirit of adoption as sons. We cry, Abba, Father, This is the Spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are God's children. If we are children, then heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ. And just as we reach that climactic point, Paul reminds us that this is true, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time That's the time between Christ's resurrection and the day of Pentecost, and He's coming again. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, Grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. I became a Christian, let me see, 46 years ago. I still remember the circumstances very vividly, almost as though it were yesterday. And then I remember the aftermath. I became a Christian, I think, about three weeks before my 15th birthday. And there were two things in the days that followed that were very much on my mind. The first was that like the children waiting for Christmas, that was a year I remember I couldn't wait for my 15th birthday because I knew at that point when somebody said to me, 
when did you become a Christian, I would no longer need to say, actually, it was only two weeks ago. I would be able to say, I became a Christian when I was 14 and I'm 15 now. And I suppose that was a very childish Christian desire to grow up as quickly as I possibly could. The other thing that I suppose was very much on my mind because of the kind of things I'd heard people say, and because I had nobody in my family that I'd ever watched trusting the Lord and growing in Jesus Christ, one of the questions that kept coming back to me, as I say, partly because it was such a dramatic thing for me, and I knew this was the kind of thing people said, I wonder if it will last. I wonder if it will last. And in the amazing tapestry that Paul's letter to the Romans is, it really is an amazing tapestry, isn't it? There are times when he turns to a theme, as he does here in Romans chapter 8, when he expounds the great reassurances of the gospel, as we've seen already now if it's true that in Jesus Christ, verse 1, there is no condemnation, then it is also true, verse 39, that in Jesus Christ, nothing can separate us from the love of God. But this isn't the first time that the Apostle Paul has emphasized this point. Indeed, over these last three or four chapters, in one way or another, every time he has spoken to us about the privileges of the gospel, at some point or another in the chapter, he's given us a reassurance that these privileges are not temporary, but they are indeed permanent. We are justified by faith, chapter 5, verse 1, and at the moment we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. But he says in chapter 5, verse 10, if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by His life. You see what he's saying? If we are justified, he says, do not think for a moment that if the Savior died to justify you, that He now lives to let you go. And so He has slipped in there that wonderful word of assurance. The same thing in chapter 6 and verse 1 when He said that we can't go on living in sin, but it's a struggle not to go on living in sin. And so He reassures us at the end of the chapter that while the wages of sin is death, the free gift of God is not temporary life in Christ Jesus, but eternal life in Christ Jesus. And then in chapter 7, that's so full we saw of struggle and agony. You remember how he ends that, crying out, who can deliver me from this body of death? And he ends the chapter in glorious triumph. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. But here now in chapter 8, the floodgates of assurance open. 
and the power of the gospel to sustain and preserve those who have come to faith in Jesus Christ comes upon us in full flood. Why are we assured of final salvation? Because of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, verses 1 to 4. Why are we assured that we will persevere? Because we are no longer in the flesh, but in the Spirit, verses 5 to 13. Why are we confident that God will hold on to us? Because we are nothing less than His dear children, chapter 8, verses 14 through 17. And not only His dear children, but the heirs and the joint heirs with Jesus Christ of all that Jesus Christ has purchased for us. Or to put it this way, our salvation is as secure as Jesus entering into the inheritance that His Father promised to give to Him. Why is that the case? Because we are that inheritance. The Christian believer, however weak he or she may feel himself to be, holds on by faith to an immensely strong Savior who is no more likely to lose his grip upon the children for whose salvation he died than he is to cease to stand at the Father's right hand where he makes intercession for them. And yet Paul is very realistic about this, isn't he? As we saw at the end last time in verse 17, he says these glorious things are true, yes, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may be glorified with Him. Now, Paul is not saying, we've seen this, Paul is not saying you, you need to have a certain amount of suffering if you're ever going to qualify for glory. No, he's saying those who are united to Christ and therefore destined for glory, those who are joint heirs with Jesus Christ, are heirs not only of the glory into which he has entered, but the sufferings that he experienced. Not that we share in their atoning power but we cannot belong to a crucified and risen Savior living in this world without sharing in His sufferings as well as sharing in His resurrection power and His glory. That's why there are always two dimensions to the Christian life. The Christian life is glorious, victorious, joyful. The Christian life is thrilling to live. And yet at the same time, the Christian life is tough, and there are sufferings, and there are hardships on the way. Why? Because we have been brought into the family of our blessed Lord Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit is working into our lives a family likeness. And since the family likeness that was first seen in the elder brother is that sufferings were the pathway to glory. 
that family likeness to some degree or another, according to God's sovereign purposes, will be reproduced in every true Christian believer. Now, that could be very discouraging for us, except that Paul is now going to make a further point to give us tremendous assurance, and that is this, that the sufferings we experience are but anticipations of the glory that will be revealed to us. And indeed, those sufferings become the raw materials out of which that glory will be produced. Do you remember how he puts it in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 in a statement that sheds light on this passage, he says, these light afflictions that we're going through, now you want to tap them in the shoulder and say, you must be joking. A few chapters later on, you'll tell us about all your afflictions, number of times you were beaten with rods, number of times you were shipwrecked and spending a night and day in the sea, the way in which you were danger from robbers, all that you experienced. These light afflictions, he says, are working for us. They are working, 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 working for us, an eternal weight of glory. And you see how he puts it here in chapter 8 in similar language. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory. It's not that in and of themselves the sufferings are light or slight. They can be excruciatingly painful. But you see, when you view them in the light of the glory that is yet to be, when you view them in the light of what it is that God is working into your life through those sufferings, you begin to understand why it is that there is no possibility of comparison between these sufferings of the present time and the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now, that little preposition to us doesn't just mean the glory that will be revealed so that we will be spectators of it and point to one another and say, isn't that glorious? That is true. But the very language Paul uses, I think, suggests the idea that that glory that we admire comes towards us like the waves of the ocean and rolls over us and captures us up into its power and majesty, the glory that is to be revealed right into us. And he's saying, you know, when we begin to understand the gospel, when we begin to understand what it is that Jesus Christ has done, then we begin to sense intellectually, and then we begin to feel emotionally and with our affections that, yes, at the end of the day, these sufferings that we go through, far from being—now, here's the important point—far from being obstacles to the Father's purpose in our lives, actually are the Father's purpose in our lives to transform us as, 
Again, he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, from one degree of glory to another. Now, Paul does a very interesting thing here. Remember how last time when he spoke to us about us being the children of God, he said that this truth in our lives was sustained on the testimony of two witnesses, the witness of the believer and the witness of the Spirit. These two witnesses are united in the cry of the believer, Father, dear Father. And it's interesting, it's incidental, I think, but it's, it's rather interesting here that now he summons two witnesses to the glory that is to be revealed. He says, now look, listen to these two witnesses and follow where they're pointing, and you will catch something of the majesty of the glory that will dawn upon us. And when your eyes are taken up with that glory, then you will actually begin to think that by comparison with that, then these momentary afflictions are indeed slight, because that glory is so great. Now, this is of tremendous importance. This is absolutely fundamental to New Testament Christianity. New Testament Christianity looks at the present life in the light of the future life and not the other way around. We tend to look at the future life in the light of the present life, but that's not the way the gospel encourages us to view either the future or the present. You remember how C.S. Lewis says so marvelously, at the end of the day, actually, the people who have made most difference in this world as Christians have not been those about whom foolish people have said they are too heavenly-minded to be any earthly use, but actually those who have been most heavenly-minded, those whose eyes have most been fixed on glory are actually the ones who have made the greatest impact in this world. And it's not difficult to see why. It's because when you've caught a sight of that glory across the horizon, you can never live in this world in the same way as though you were a mere citizen of time. Paul is helping us to understand whatever the suffering, whatever the struggles, whatever the trials. We need to see them in the light of the glory, and we need to understand that they are actually the Father's instruments in forging the glory. That's a great secret, you know. If you find yourself as a Christian witness being persecuted or demeaned and maligned, you know what people are trying to do. They're trying to destroy your Christian faith. They don't understand anything about the gospel. They don't understand this principle, that in the act of seeking to destroy your Christian faith, they're actually benefiting your Christian faith, that every ounce of suffering they seek to inject into your world will weigh pounds of glory in heaven. So that in a sense, 
however much we feel the pain and we're sensitive enough to feel the pain, we can quietly smile inside and say to those who seek to destroy our faith, you have no idea whatsoever what you're doing. You have no idea whatsoever what you're doing. Now, what are these two witnesses? Well, the first is in verses 19 through 22. It is that the whole of creation is waiting for that glory to be revealed. And he puts it in this really astonishing and unique way. Verse 19, he says, the creation waits with eager longing for the final revealing of the sons of God. Remember how the Apostle John puts it in 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 to 3. He says, Beloved, we are already the children, the sons of God, but it doesn't yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him. And Paul pictures the whole of creation straining to, to try and see over the horizon, longing for that day when the sons of God, as he puts it here in these remarkable words, will be revealed. I love, incidentally, J.B. Phillips' little paraphrase of this verse. If you're over 45, you know that J.B. Phillips paraphrased the New Testament, and some of it is a little dodgy, and some of it is extraordinarily good. And he's extraordinarily good here, because the language Paul uses here is the language of somebody stretching their neck to see something. I don't know, those of you who have been following golf will know that Tiger Woods not only put another $3 million into his bank account by going to Australia, he won the tournament. I read on my website they were standing six deep to see the great golfer. Six deep. Now, they're not small in Australia. I've been to Australia. They're not tiny little people in Australia. And if they're six deep, some of them must have been going like this, stretching out their neck like a, like a parent might do at the, at the closing of the school day as the children all mass out in their, their, their multiplied unruliness. And there's, a, there's an anxious mother stretching out her neck. Where's my little Johnny? Oh, where are you, Johnny? Oh, Johnny, don't have your shirt hanging out of your trousers like that, just waiting. Now, here's how J.B. Phillips puts it. He says, the whole creation stands on tiptoe, waiting for the sons of God to come into their own. Why is that? Because the world doesn't think very much about you and me as the children of God. Being a Christian, that's not about these strange people Sunday night at church. What on earth are they doing in that pink building on a Sunday night? What a strange thing to do. They don't know. Now, you know, when somebody says to you, do you know who I am? Always the best answer is, if you need to ask me, then you're in deep trouble. <laughs> but you see, in our heart of hearts, we say that to people who are unbelievers, and they demean the Christian faith. 
They despise the Christian faith. But inwardly we say, you've no idea who I am, have you? I had a wonderful experience years ago. I was sitting on a plane. I think I was heading for Scotland. It might have been Ireland, or it could have been England. And the girl beside me started, started to witness to me. She was so enthusiastic. You know, I could hardly get a word in edgeways. Um, and then she went to the mission that she was going to. I think it was in Dublin. And we had shared a wonderful time of fellowship on the plane. And uh, she got so excited about meeting a Christian on the plane. She was a relatively young Christian. She was so excited about it. And so she went to, to this group of students. She said, I met this man on the plane. His name was Sinclair Ferguson. And I witnessed to him. And it turned out he was a Christian. Well, by sheer happenstance, most of these people apparently had read one or other of my books. And they thought, you were witnessing to him. He's written books about being a Christian witness. <laughs> but it was lovely to sit in the plane away up there, cruising altitude, 33,000 feet, and listen to this girl opening her heart to this middle-aged man to seek to win him for Jesus Christ. And I'm quietly thinking, you've really no idea who I am at all. I'm a Christian, you see. But you see, says Paul, in the economy of God, it's as though the creation is just longing for the day when the sons of God will be revealed in all their majesty and glory. It's like the crowds in the Melbourne golf club stretching their necks to see what amazing thing is going to take place on the 17th fairway or wherever. And then you see he begins to explain this to us. He says, why is this happening? It's because the creation has been subjected to futility. He's thinking about what, Paul, what, what Moses says in Genesis chapter 3, when he records the judgment of God upon the creation. And he speaks to Adam. Adam, he says, work used to be easy. Work used to be a delight. But from now on, you're fighting against the odds because the thorns and the thistles are going to destroy. And we see, we see all kinds of evidence of that. We see the, the inbuilt frustrations, as it were, of the created order that when you think about the history of the earth, that over the centuries, it never seems to have been able to fulfill its potential. There have been earthquakes and, and natural disasters, and Paul is saying, don't you understand what's going on here? The creation has been subjected to futility by God's judgment, he says. So no wonder, just as Paul is saying, Oh, wretched man, who can deliver me from this body of death? As he personifies the creation, he says, Almost all the creation is longing, groaning for the day when it will be delivered from this terrible futility in its own existence, when its entropy will come to an end. 
And when all the angst and the alienation in the animal kingdom will be brought to an end. And as Isaiah says on more than one occasion, these wolves will lie down with the lamb. And he says, do you see it? That the whole creation is, as it were, pointing forwards to that great day when the creation will be liberated from its bondage to decay. It's like a mother in labor, he says. Do you see in verse 22? The whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. It's longing for the new birth, you see, when it will be released And Paul understands what the release mechanism is. Because what brought the world into this frustration and futility was the sin and fall of Adam. And therefore, the trigger mechanism that God must use to bring restoration and recreation to the created order and the animal order must surely be what he has been speaking about in chapter 5, when the second Adam to the fight and to the rescue came. The Lord Jesus, who in His resurrection broke through not only the power of sin and death and Satan, but broke through through all the entropy that, as it were, engulfs us in death with the created order, and became, as Paul thinks, the first fruits of a new world that God will bring into being when the Lord Jesus Christ returns and He repeats the power of His resurrection into the frail and dead bodies of those who have trusted and loved Him. He says, beloved, we're living in a, we're living in a world that is straining forward to that day. It's groaning like a woman in childbirth for the day the new birth will take place. And then he says, if that's the first witness, then we are the second witness. The creation is longing for this new day of glory. And then you see in verses 23 to 25, the sons of God are also longing for it. We know the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation. Not only the creation, but he says, we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. It's almost as though he's saying, do you hear that mighty groan of creation in the sighing of the wind, in the anger of the animals? 
in those strange symphonies of natural disasters. Those are but echoes of the groans within the hearts of God's true children who have been given the first fruits of the Spirit. And because the Spirit has come to indwell them as the Spirit of the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ, they necessarily long and groan for that day that the work that God in His goodness has begun in them will be brought to completion, and the work He brings to completion in us as individuals will be brought to final completion among all His people. Just in passing notice, because it's not unimportant, that when you receive the Spirit as the first fruits of that final salvation, you don't stop groaning. You start groaning in a new way. Do not believe any presentation of the Christian gospel or the Christian life that says to you it's possible to live in this world free from groans. If you live in this world free from groans, you have cut the umbilical cord of faith in Jesus Christ to the glorious Jesus Christ. You cannot live in this world in all its fallen condition and in this body that remains marred by sin in which you continue to battle against indwelling sin and with a longing for Jesus Christ to appear without saying, and I also am a witness to the glory that is yet to be revealed, and I long to see it fulfilled and consummated. And the reason I long to see it consummated is because I've already tasted it. I wonder if you have experiences in your life, perhaps particularly if you're anything like me, there are experiences of worshiping God among His people that you sometimes think, I will die a dissatisfied man unless I can taste that again. You know that moments have come in your life? I could tell you what mine are. They're very diverse. And inwardly, every time I enter a church building for a service of worship, Lord, could this be the day when you give me another taste of that? What is it? It's a taste of glory. And until you are fully and finally satisfied with the glory that is to be revealed right into you, of course, we who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. Now, aren't we already adopted? Don't we already have the spirit of adoption? Yes, indeed we do, but we don't look like it. Walking down Main Street in Columbia and seeing you across the road, it would be very difficult for me to say, that looks like a person who has the spirit of sonship, who is destined for glory. But Paul is saying the day will come when that will be written all over you when you are caught up into that glory, 
It doesn't appear what we shall be, but when he appears and brings down the curtain on history and ushers in the new age, when he appears, we shall be like him. Like him. Because in that day, there takes place not only that inner redemption by which our sins are forgiven, but as Paul says here, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Some of you just by providence long for this more than others. Every time I wake up in the morning, almost my first horizontal thought is, where are my spectacles? And some of you are a lot worse off than I am in all kinds of ways. And you long for that day when you will be raised and transformed. Not only that, dear friends, you won't just be put together as a good surgeon or physician could put you together. You'll be transformed into the likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ and all those dimensions of your life that frustrate you, the ways in which you struggle with sin, the ways in which you keep letting the Lord Jesus down, the way in which you hurt those you love most, deliverance from all this, radical, final transformation, irreversible transformation. And because we've just got a taste of it, we long for more. And like the creation, we're straining forwards to see what it is that God is going to do when the Lord Jesus comes and winds up the whole of history. Let me take a moment, can I tonight, because we'll not turn back to this next Lord's Day evening. Let me take a moment just to fill in the details of this from what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Turn there, if you will. It's page 961. This is the great chapter. Verse 20, he says, Christ has been raised from the dead the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, the point is that Jesus is the first fruits of a final harvest, and his resurrection actually guarantees the whole harvest. As by a man came death and frustration, so also by a man the Lord Jesus has come resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be raised from the dead. Now keep your finger there and turn over to verse 42, where he takes this further. He says, what about this resurrection from the dead? It's what's sown is perishable. Don't you feel perishable? But what is raised is imperishable. What's sown is sown in dishonor but it's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. It's raised in power. It's sown a natural body, a body fit for this natural order. It will be raised a body fit for the power of the Spirit. Thus it is written, the first man Adam became a living being, but, says Paul, the last Adam, Jesus Christ, became a life 
giving spirit. And then at the end, as was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. As is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we've borne the image of the man of dust, we'll bear the image of the man, Christ Jesus, who is coming from heaven to transform all things. Now turn back again, verses 24 through 28. Look at what he says now. All this, he says, takes place in a carefully regulated divine order. First of all, Jesus Christ. That's why we're here tonight. It has already begun in Jesus Christ. Then, he says, when Christ returns, those who belong to Christ will be raised. And then when he has put all his enemies under his feet, he will deliver the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. And when all things are subjected to him, then the Son, that is, the second man who's come to undo all that the first man did, who's broken through all the powers that hold us down, who is the first resurrected man, the new man in history, then leading all those whom he's brought back from life and transformed in resurrection— the whole company of the redeemed gathered round the Lord Jesus Christ, he will lead into the presence of his Father in a renewed creation. And he will say to his Father, I have finished the work you gave me to do, and now we give to you as our love gift, although He's done it all Himself, as our love gift, we give to you this transformed and renewed creation. Now, when that fills the horizon of your mind, two things happen. The first is that you wait eagerly even while you groan inwardly. Isn't that fantastic? You don't find non-Christians doing this. As we wait eagerly, we groan inwardly. And as we wait patiently, we wait hopefully. And you all know that hope in the Bible is not I'd really like to think it's going to happen, but it is going to happen even although it has not finally happened yet. And so, in this strange concert of voices, the whole creation is pointing forwards to that day when glory will be revealed, and that glory is going to, as it were, like a newborn child be the fruit of the sufferings. And we who have the first fruits of the Holy Spirit, who even in this world groan inwardly, wait eagerly for that great day when we will experience the adoption as sons 
in the redemption of our bodies. Now, there's actually a third groan in this passage, isn't there? There's the groaning of creation. There's the groaning of the believer. And there's the groaning of the Spirit. And unless our Lord Jesus comes in the course of this week, which would be wonderful, we'll turn to that next Lord's Day evening.